Welcome to The Ledge. My name is Chris Harper, and I'll be your host every week. Every Tuesday, I will interview an artist, developer, or creative mind from the Web3 space. I'll be getting up close and personal with my guests as we explore the emerging crypto art and NFT scene. It is my feeling, along with many others, that we are in a digital renaissance. The emergence of blockchain technology has revolutionized the way we look at ownership, provenance, and digital assets. It is my goal as your host to help shed light on these complex subjects and even more so the individuals behind it all who are carving out their place in history here on the ledge of Web3. My name's Chris Harper, and this is another weekly episode of The Ledge. Today, I have Eitan Barokas from New, New Jersey joining me. Uh, Eitan is a mixed media artist, and uh, he and I have been chatting for about I almost, well, it's been several months now since you had your drop on Nifty Gateways, and I'm really excited to have you on today and interview you today. Eitan, tell us about yourself, your name, age, and where you're from, man. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Chris. It's uh, it's really awesome to get to connect in a, in a way like this after all the conversations that we've had. For but sure. I'll give a little rundown for everybody. My name's Eitan Barokas. I'm 27 years old currently living and working in New Jersey. Uh, mixed media is not a bad way to throw it. I'm a painter, digital artist, photographer, writer. The list keeps on growing and uh, just trying to figure it out along the way. Yeah, it's awesome, man. I, I was looking at your website and, and and I was pretty blown away at like the variety of styles and, you know, media types that you that you use to create art. I appreciate it. It's uh I think a lot of it is really a function of being self-taught and starting on a whim. Uh, I came into art nearly by mistake. I downloaded an app one day when I was 15, 16, something like that, because I wanted to doodle and I was out. And suddenly I started making these digital drawings like I never did before. I was never much of a drawer when I was younger, much of an an artist at all. Uh, And then from there, I fell into paint and fell into the abstract. And I think without any formal education or any framework for really why I was doing the things that I was doing, it enabled me to really explore. And, and I'm happy that you got to dive into the archives and see a little bit of the journey and the different styles that I've played with along the way. What was the app that you downloaded when you were a kid? Do you remember the Highly name? recommend it. It's, uh, it's literally for little kids. It's called Kids Doodle. I searched the word doodle in the app store over 10 years ago. That was the first thing that came up and I got to work and it really just, it changed everything for me by accident. I started to create figures and faces and do things that I never could really do with pen and paper before. And I didn't know it then, but I guess that, that was really the starting gun that got me all the way to here. When we spoke the other day, um, we were talking about your profile picture, like your profile picture on Twitter. Yeah. That came from that doodle program, right? Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the first ones that I ever made. And it was definitely the first creation that I ever made where I was like, holy crap, I get it now. Like I get what I'm doing, why I'm doing. Creating digitally gave me this voice to kind of work through a lot of questions that I didn't really have the answer to, that I didn't even know that I was interrogating at the time. And uh, the character that you're referencing, Mr. Thai Guy, nearly by mistake has become quite synonymous with me. And uh it's really hung around as something that's that's been important not only to me but to the people who know and support my work for for all these years. 
I mean, it's pretty cool. It's a doodle, obviously. It's like a doodle of a like a guy's face, but it's kind of done with like I don't know. Is that like color, like colored pencil style? Was that what you would call it? And it's it's definitely got like a like a vibe about it, and it goes on all your like social media profiles as your profile picture, which I think is really cool. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of become a self portrait of sorts. I think when I made it, I didn't even know that it was so geared towards me. So. I know everybody's just listening. They can't see it. They can check it out online for sure. sure. But in the interim, I can say that it's this character with his his mouth, I think, is the most interesting part. It's like half a, half a frown, half a smile. Uh, and he's kind of stuck in the thick of it right in the middle, being pulled on all ends. And he's wearing this suit with this tie and all the lines in his suit are facing down. And I think for me, when I was younger, I was really just getting into art. I had no idea. It was nothing more than a hobby and an escape for me at the time. But I think I started to look ahead and say, oh, crap, am I going to be the guy in the suit or am I going to tap into this and see what I can do? And uh, I guess that ethos hasn't really changed over the last 10, 12 years since since I made this character and, and he's hung around and kind of defined me in a way for all that time. Tell me about young Aton. Where did you grow up? Yeah, young Aton. I grew up in New Jersey. I lived in Jersey pretty much all my life up until I was 18, but I grew up around art. Uh, but I never was in New, your family still in New Jersey now. Yeah. So my parents and my brother are in New Jersey. The rest of my family is overseas. Uh, so we're the only ones here. And I really, I really always grew up around art. I was really lucky and I'm really grateful to have that foundation, but it wasn't always pointed to me as a creator. Uh, my mother has been a ceramic and artist and potter since she's like four years old. Uh, even till today, she's in studio once or twice a week every single week. So living outside of New York City, I got a lot of awesome exposure to, to the art world. And I think even though I didn't know it then, it was always kind of planting those seeds and inspiring me for, for all that came in the future. Uh, but young Eitan was everything but an artist. <laughs> what do your parents do for a living, Eitan? So my father's worked in textiles since I, since I was born, really since he moved over to the States. And my mother's a freelance interior designer. Uh, but to me, she's like always been an artist. She's not a professional artist, but the house is filled with ceramics, pottery, creativity since I can remember. So that's what the two of them are up to. Does your mom work with like contractors and, and uh, like designing people's homes, like in renovations? Or she'd like uh, helping people when they move in, that kind of thing? A little bit, a little bit of both. I think over the years, I've watched her kind of transform business in different ways depending on what she's up to and what she's trying to get into but she's mainly freelance uh like privately for people who reach out to her but she's definitely done some work i'm gonna have to connect her with you man get her down to charleston yeah that's, yeah, that's for sure I, what, a lot of people don't know that but uh my my day job when i'm not uh podcasting i'm uh i'm a general contractor and i do renovation there you go. we're gonna we're gonna connect some dots i'm gonna call mom after this <laughs> <laughs> nice man did what was your education like? Did you go to like private school, public school? How was your early education? Public school. So I went to public school all my life, um, which is really awesome. I like never really thought about that until I went to college later on. I went to Emory University down in Atlanta. And when I got down there, I met a bunch of people who went to private school. And I was like, holy crap, I didn't even know where I was or what I was in. But I grew up in, uh, in a cool small town in Jersey. And I was in that school system all my life. And that was pretty awesome. Definitely like a solid education, set me up for a lot. 
I was really lucky to make a lot of awesome friends that I'm still really close with till today. Really uh, couldn't complain. I feel like it set me up good for all that came after when I went down to Emory University. I, uh, I I know Emory pretty well. I actually lived in Decatur for a lot of years in my adult life, and I was uh, really, really close to Emory University, and I'm very familiar with it. It's a great college, actually. So we, we, it sounds like we need to go take a trip down there and eat some good meals together. <laughs> Love Atlanta. Yes, sir. <laughs> Atlanta's awesome. Atlanta was, uh, that whole experience was really foundational for me because as I told you before, and as I told you when we spoke over these last few months, multiple times, this all kind of happened on a whim for me. I didn't know that this is what I was going to be doing, chasing art in the way that I am. It was more of a hobby and an outlet for me. And around the time when I was getting ready to go to school, that's really when I was just starting up. When you went to Emory, what were you planning to do? So I was kind of all over when I was at school. I intended to go for business at first. And then when I got down there, I kind of scrapped it and I came back to it. I ended up doubling up and studying in business with a focus in management and consulting. But on the liberal arts side, I got a major in a program called Interdisciplinary Studies which is a really just a long way to say that I got to explore my own liberal arts major and kind of make my own major, write a thesis at the end and put it all together. Uh, but in my time at school, while I was like half at school, I was half doing everything else. I was a part of a few businesses with a lot of awesome, awesome friends and creatives putting on events all over the city of Atlanta. I was working in music management, um, but I was always painting. That was That was the big thing. You know, I was involved in all these amazing things both in school and outside of school that I really saw a lot of potential in for for my life now let's say in my future but the one constant that I had was that I was always painting and uh, I think that all started to turn you know like as I kept going to school and finishing up what I needed to do I was I was really asking myself what do I want to do and, and the answer always came back to art did you have like a studio down there in uh, in Emory or that you could work out of how'd you how'd you find a place to work? My studio was literally everywhere, and all my friends can attest to it. I was painting from my freshman year dorm to the garage in the townhouse my senior year. Like every year, I found somewhere else to paint, depending on where I lived. Uh, one summer that I stayed down in Atlanta, one of my friends gave me the code to the arts building. So I used to just sneak in there like late at night, paint, <laughs> things like that. Um, and some of, I actually have multiple pieces from that summer back back at my parents' house that, that I leave with them. It's kind of like a token and a memory of where this thing really started before I knew what the hell I was even getting into. I like to ask everybody this question that I interview and I, and I love to see what answers people give me. Do you remember the first thing in your life that you created that you would call art? Wow. The Well, I can't tell you the first thing that I created, but I could tell you the first thing that I created that I would call art was Mr. Ty Guy, the character that we were referencing earlier. That's all of my profile pictures and, and that whole thing. Okay. I think like when I made, when I made that for the first time, I realized like I always used to doodle and things like that, but I wouldn't consider myself a drawer. Even today, my drawing skills aren't too, too great. It's hard for me to always translate thoughts directly. I was always working in abstract. And I think when I created the Ty Guy, what really stood out for me was the emotion. And I made a character that, that I could connote to that had a connotation to it that was real and physical and emotive. And uh, 
I always look back on him. I think that's really why he still hangs around for me as kind of a like an emblem of who I am and, and all that I'm up to and what I'm working towards because this was the first one where I was really like, oh crap, I get it now. I know this because of our conversation that we had the other day, but you, you alluded that um, when you were at Emory, you made a connection with some folks there that kind of have led you to where you are today. 100%. Yeah. Like <laughs> you're talking about the creative community I was telling you about. Yeah. 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 I was really fortunate. I met a lot of incredible people. It all started my freshman year of college. I was in a, a history of jazz class, funny enough, like one of those freshman year, you got to take this yeah. class, this class, this class. And I love jazz. So I ended up meeting a student named Davion, who's one of my best friends till today and one of my biggest mentors, really. And I expressed to him that I was interested in meeting more creatives and getting into music and finding some like management roles. Cause Atlanta is a huge music city and uh, Davion must have seen something or I, I, I'm happy that he did now and I'm looking back at it. And he invited me to a meeting to come meet a few creatives who were also at, in Emory, also in Atlanta, who were working towards all sorts of different goals and music and fashion and art. And it was awesome. I got like these keys nearly by mistake to a creative community, some of whom are my best friends on the planet who I support through and through till today and support me too. So that was really the the foundation for me, I think. And and the first time that I ever showed any of my work was some of those digital doodles that we referenced earlier at some fashion show on campus at Emory. So even when it was nothing, those were the those were the stepping stones that really built up into all of this that we're working on today. You also met one of the founders of the largest NFT platforms out there. <laughs> I did. I did. I met Duncan, talking about Duncan Cockfoster from Nifty Gateway. Yeah. So it's, it's probably one of my favorite stories because it's absolutely true. It was probably the first day that I got to campus. I was going down the escalator in the bookstore and I'm with my mom and my mom like taps me. We're like literally in the middle of the escalator and she's like, look, that kid has your glasses. And my face dropped. I was like, that's my mortal enemy. Because uh, I had these like orange and blue glasses. I'm the only idiot in the world wearing them. And I was like, damn, there's another idiot right here, right in front of me wearing them too. And uh, it was kind of like this joke before I made it down the escalator. Inside, I was like, I hate this guy. And then we became best, best friends for literally four years. And we're still very, very, very close friends still today. Best, best friends. I was just texting him before this. I told him I was jumping on. And Duncan Cock Foster went on to start uh, become one of the founders of Nifty Gateway, which is like where most of the NFT digital crypto artists and that are that have any notoriety at all are, are using as their jumping off platform. Hundred percent, yeah. Uh, I'm quick to remind him all the time of how important I think his role is in in the scope of art history which is a weird conversation, right? Because we're like living through it and its presence. You don't feel it as much. But sometimes when I talk to him, I tap him out and I'm like, listen, like zoom out. Like we are, you are doing something, you are building something that is going to set, set history in a way, you know, like there is no people to some degree or to the degree, maybe that people, Mad Dog Jones, et cetera, like that whole elite tier one first round of artists, they all started from, from really like some dream that Duncan had about, the way to use this technology and empower artists. And I don't know. I never saw it. As I Dude, mentioned you to you saying that just gave me the chills, literally like thinking about that. I mean, because it's so true, you know, like this, that, that idea that they had and that, 
you know, it's, I mean, all of this is happening because of that, you know, it's humbling. And I think like what gives it the goosebump feeling more than anything is that nobody saw it. You know, it wasn't one of those things where there was this idea being worked on and a lot of people were working on it and there was this market acceptance or like any notion that this is where we were going. It was just an idea. And I remember all of our peers were like, you're nuts. And I was like, you're nuts. You know, like I was an artist creating I started like painting. I was getting into my work more and figuring my stuff out. And I was like, whoa, like there's no way I could do this. You know, like I've been working so hard in the physical world and building a value for my collectors and the people who believe in me. And now I'm just going to like digitize everything and send JPEGs across the internet and on the blockchain. I didn't know anything that was going on, but I was really, really lucky to be around him and others who really had foresight and vision. And uh, I mentioned it to you and I mentioned it to everybody. I'm really upfront about it. Like I totally had the chance to be a part of an early wave of this whole space. And I personally didn't see it. And it's one of those things that I just have to like deal with. It's not really something that I look back and regret in a sense, because I'm really proud of what I've done over the last few years with a lot of conviction. And I'm really excited about it. But there's always like that 1% inside of me where it's like, holy shit, you missed the boat. So being exposed to that guy and uh, I don't think you missed the boat at all is something. We're still so freaking early. We're we still are. so early. I'll tell you how I came to find out about you is, uh, you know, obviously I was, collect I was collecting art on Nifty Gateway. I was pretty new at it myself and learning. Um, and I followed Duncan Cock Foster on Twitter. And I remember him posting about your drop and he, and he actually invited like anybody that had any questions to send him a DM. And so I did, I sent him a DM. I was like, okay, I want to, I'm interested. And he wrote back to me and was like, this artist is really awesome. And, you know, you have this drop coming up and, you know, this guy's going to totally blow up and da, 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 you know, I mean, he just really talked you up and made it seem very, uh, you know, like really like, like a really great opportunity to jump in on some of your stuff. And that's exactly what I did. I, I fully just aped in man and bought, you know, some one-on-one stuff I, for years. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm yeah. really grateful. I'm really grateful for all of that because you know, it's like, it's rare too, you know, when people, like people are usually in your corner when they have something to gain. Uh, and it's really rare when people are in your corner and uplift you and support you and give to you when, when they don't have anything to gain, they're doing it for you and for your own interest and for you to succeed. And I'm definitely really, really lucky to have known Duncan for as long as I have. And, and on the inverse too, for him to have known me, because I think what gave him such, and what gives him rather such a unique lens into who I am and I guess gives him the confidence and the conviction to, to speak on my behalf the way that he did with you. And I guess with others, which, which is so humbling is that he's watched me go through this and through these motions for over 10 years. And he's watched me paint when nobody was watching. He's watched me set up shows when nobody was there. He's seen me kind of go through all of these different iterations of myself as I was starting up and, you know, like when I finally came to and started working on the last series that dropped, which was We Could Be Anywhere Volume 1, Duncan had this insight because he knew my history as a digital artist, as just a doodler, and then a painter for six, seven years doing shows in the city and having like this whole physical life. And then when this series came out, I think that he had a unique vantage point to see my growth. And I'm definitely really grateful and lucky that he cared enough to relay it to to people like you who are now not only collectors, but, but really friends. 
Dude, I'm, I'm so well, glad that I I'm so glad that I collected the pieces that I did. And I want to say something about you right now, um, which was really impressive to me. And that was that when that drop happened, I collected two pieces. I collected one for my wife called His Own Mirror. And I, I sent that to her as a gift to her. And I collected the a piece that really resonated with me that I liked very much, was, which was Judah, which you know. And that experience of buying that art from you was the first time that I, um, that I bought NFTs from somebody on Nifty Gateway and they turned around and the artist reached out to me. You texted me within a couple of days and you were so gracious and so, uh, you know, it, it was just so, it was just such a nice, like, like touch, you know, to get that message from you. Like when you said, thank you so much for buying my art and this means a lot, you know, all of those things. And like that started that connection between us, which, uh, you know, was carried on and we're still having a conversation, which I think is really awesome. You know, that meant a lot, man. That was really cool. And nobody did that, <laughs> you know, like I hadn't had that experience. I, I appreciate it. And, you know, like all that I could say is that I really mean it, you know, like it's, it's so I genuine, it's so real. <laughs> I'm just, I'm like so humbled, you know, like I started off, I don't know. I don't think that we covered this, but I know that I mentioned it to you. I started off on like between my junior year and senior year of college, I was really curious about where this was all heading. And I was involved in all these things that I mentioned to you going on at in school in Atlanta and I had like this double life, but I was always, always, always painting. So between my junior and senior year at college, I said, forget the internship, forget the path that I know that I'm supposed to go on to do this thing that I'm supposed to do, that like I've been like geared to do. And I decided to reach out into kind of like my inspirations. You're asking me about like my upbringing. When I was a kid, I used to go to Soho. It's a neighborhood in New York City. And there's artists selling on the street along Prince Street. And I've been lucky enough to be around those guys for years and years since since I like just started walking. And between my junior and senior year of college, I decided to set up shop with my work. So for three straight months, I was out there uh, on Prince Street between Broadway and Green. Um, you know, and like that experience changed my life. And I'll never forget the first time that somebody bought something for me. It was a little girl named Rachel from Michigan. And it was my first day and her, she walked by with her mother and it was like early in the morning. I just set up. I didn't know what I was doing. She asked me about a painting. I gave her a price. Her mom said, we'll be back. In my head, I wrote it off. Later that day, I'm packing up. Little girl taps me, shows up, hands me a wad of cash and takes the painting. <laughs> and that experience for me changed everything for me about myself, my art, what I'm here to do, the weight of my work, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I think like being able to interact with people in that level set this important foundation for me about community, collectorship. Like it never goes over my head when somebody believes in me. Like it's like it never flies by me. It's like not even for a second. It's like nothing stops me in my track more than that to know that somebody's with me and investing in me. And it's not even about like financial, it's emotional. And, you know, like when you purchase that piece along with everybody else out of the 50 pieces, like it's my mission to meet you guys. Like it's my mission to be friends with you, to grow with you, to build with you. Like I want to be in your life in the same way that you evidently want to be in mine. So I guess the thing that makes me the happiest is that it translated and that it reached you. That's really cool. Tell me about that drop. It's called, we could be anywhere. It's a series of uh, one of one paintings. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure how many there were, but there were quite 50. a few. 
50. Yep. 50. Tell me how you, um, how you developed that idea, how you created it. Like where did that art project begin and how did you wrap it up and deliver it to the consumer? Yeah. So I feel like we could be anywhere. It was kind of a culmination of my last 10 years in art and then life. And just as like a person growing and figure th- figuring things out. Um, I couldn't explain the series without just giving a little bit of history. And that's really the fact that I've been primarily a painter for the last seven, eight years, quite consistently. Uh, and I still am a painter. This, this project is just another arm of mine that I'm excited to work on, excited to share. But, you know, like as a painter, so focused in the abstract for so long, I use the abstract more than anything as a mask. Uh, for me, creating was an accident. It started by mistake. And I fell in love with it. It was this therapy. And I really leaned on the abstract styles as this barrier between myself and what I wanted to get out and my viewer, because I wasn't always comfortable or confident enough to really just write it all out there. I remember like when I was younger, people always used to ask me, oh, what does this mean? What does this mean? I used to say like, you know, if I wanted to tell you, I'd be a poet. I wouldn't be painting abstract. And that was like a young version of myself that I wanted to outgrow of at my own pace. And, uh, I think I started asking myself a lot of questions about what I'm doing as an artist, what I'm creating, why I'm creating, how am I reaching people? How am I giving to people in different ways through my work? And I started just really reflecting on what type of work drives me, what type of artists do I love, what type of vulnerabilities do I appreciate that I get to tap into through others. And I don't know, I just like, I felt like I needed to grow up in a sense. Like I needed to come face to face, like look myself in the mirror strap off the ego, open up, be vulnerable. And that all led me to look into my work in a new way. So I've been a street photographer for forever. I mean, probably since before I started the digitals or anything else, I just never looked at it as an art form because it was just something I always did. Uh, But I've been collecting tens of thousands of photographs for over 10 years, and I never really show them. And uh, I wanted to recreate work for my photography. And the catch with street photography is that, you know, you're capturing a fleeting moment. So not always the whole picture, the whole photograph is constructed perfectly, or not for me at least. So I started to dive back into my photographs and I wanted to pull apart the pieces that made me feel and that made me think and that made me stop in my tracks too and jump into somebody else's life. And I started creating on my iPad, on, uh, on Procreate, I started creating what I call digital photo isolates where I would isolate individual pixels and pieces and color waves from photos. And maybe I'd take them and take a person and isolate them out on their own on a white backdrop, or I would teleport a person into a different scene that I isolated. So for me, it was really about reworking through my mediums, bringing back figures and faces and emotions and kind of coming to terms with my role, I guess, as an artist, as I want to be. And I wanted to just break some of that distance and take off that mask. And that led me to starting this whole process. And it kind of became really worldly, really quick for me. I went from zero to 60. The whole idea behind we could be anywhere is that you don't need to be the person in the picture. You don't need to be the same race, gender, religion, location, whatever it is. Like you look at those pieces, you read the stories that accompany them. I don't care who you are, where you're from, and what sets us apart. We could very well be feeling the same thing. And that's that's been the backbone of the We Could Be Anywhere project, kind of 
my shout to overcome myself and also my shout to connect with the world. Creating 50 unique artworks like that is no small feat. No, it was, <laughs> it was How not. How long did something like that take you? <laughs> uh, I'd say like each piece takes somewhere like they all vary, uh, but I'd say like somewhere between like four to eight hours is conservative. Right. Um, 50 times over. And I think the first round, what really kicked my butt harder even was, was the written stories that I wrote to accompany them. Well, I was going to really touch on that. A lot, of the, a lot of this artwork that you're producing is, is in essence, you're telling a story and there's like blurbs of story along with it. Um, and I know you're a storyteller because I've re- I followed along with uh, your recent travels and a lot of your blogging that you do as well. Thank you. Tell me about the story portion of this it's it's kind of just what i was really talking about it was this realization that i've kind of been in my own shell and i've put myself in that shell and i've been really comfortable in it and i think i just wanted to break out of my own box and to go from the abstract where so much is open for interpretation to these like digital works based on the photographs where it's so much more direct i guess i kind of just wanted to seal it myself and say like i'm not just gonna take that one step, I'm really going to go for it. And I think volume one was really more about me than anybody else to begin. Like all of the stories, I'd say like 48 out of 50 of them are pure fiction. Uh, You want to know about me, you read those stories, but you might also learn about you too. And uh, that's kind of like where it all began. It was this kind of desire to overcome myself and be vulnerable and connect. And all of that, you know, after volume one, I thought long and hard about how to continue to grow the We Could Be Anywhere project. And I realized that so much of volume one was about who I am. And I wanted volume two to be way, way, way bigger than me. And that's kind of what led me to Small Town USA, which is the last the last project that I'm working on this past summer and all through the next drop, which, which I hope comes up in uh, April or so. That's right on, man. That's really cool. Tell me about Judah, that character Judah. I'm interested because I, <laughs> I'm i a holder of Judah, but I see this character reoccurring throughout your art. Yeah. he. You picked the winner, man. He's the most uh, prevalent person in, in volume one, I'd say, by far. So, you know, like when I started isolating these characters out, I also started teleporting them into new scenes. Uh, I always had this fascination with the sense of like minimalism that I always ran through, ran from through my work. And this series kind of brought it all back. So Judah actually stands on his own. Uh, it comes from a picture in a really, really religious neighborhood in Israel. Uh, in the actual photograph, he's crossing the street and it's a busy street and it's sundown and the Sabbath is approaching. And there's like this facade from behind where you just like, I don't know. He always had this attitude to me and he's like clutching this little plastic bag that has a, a logo on it, which happens to be a Jewish star. And he's wearing his keep on his head. And I just like, I royally connected to it. I was in a neighborhood that I had no business being in, in terms of like, I'm not as religious, this, that, but I went there to shoot because I find it so, so interesting. And when I captured him, I became obsessed with him. And suddenly I started creating the physicals for my series. I made seven physical physical works on canvas out of uh, out of the digitals. And I keep seeing this guy appearing in all my works almost subconsciously. Uh, so to me, Judah's kind of, he's kind of like the, the emblem of, of We Could Be Anywhere volume one. I really like look at him and I see like 
a young version of myself. Uh, there's like this really funny, there's one of the digitals, one of the 50 where it's two kids sitting and Judah's in it. He's walking through and the guy behind him is reading books. And I remember I made it. I sent it to my brother and I was like, dude, that's us. Uh, <laughs> so it's a little bit of home and a little bit of history and, and a little bit of who I am and, and my roots. So I think that the, what you're saying to me and what I hear you saying is like, this creates like a feeling of nostalgia for you. Totally. A lot of this, a lot of this series, right? Like I didn't create volume one knowing exactly what I was going to create. I started to, like I told you, like I started to interrogate my own artwork, my own place, what I was up to. And I started creating these digital photo isolates from my photographs as a way to just work through some of my archives and see like review and retool my work in a new way. Uh, and then I started to realize what I kept on gravitating towards was kind of a story that I've been running from the whole time, which is kind of the story of me and who I am and my identity and where I'm from. And, you know, in the abstract, you get to use that distance. You get to have leverage and strength and position and power in how you present. But this series for me was about taking it all off and stripping back down and and opening myself up and one way or another, whether I knew it or not, it was, it was really about all about me and who I was or who I am. You're, you're, uh, you're that this art style that you keep referring to digital photo isolates is very, um, it's, it's, it's very cool. A like your artworks you. are, are very, um, unique and cool. I, I, you know, I find them very like visually appealing. Is that a style that you created on your own? I mean, did you teach yourself or is that something, did you emulate someone else or copy someone else? I, I feel silly saying it, but I think I just made it on my own because I know everything. I feel silly saying it because everything comes no, from an inspiration, but I never saw anybody doing exactly what I'm doing, I guess. Um, how do you do it? How, tell me how that works. I'm, I'm curious, like the, from the technical aspect, like how does that, how does that get created? Yeah. So it really all starts from the photograph, right? And I kind of prelude, gave like a prelude to it, but in street photography, you, you sacrifice a moment for the composition of a photo. So I was always so drawn to these portions in my photographs, whether they be people or settings, or whatever it is in that one instant where you, where you snap the shot. Uh, but I wasn't always as happy or proud or had as much conviction in the final product as a photograph on its own. So I brought these photographs to my iPad and using uh, Procreate, it's a digital drawing application. It's like similar to Photoshop in a way, but drawing heavy. Uh, I started bringing these photos over and I was pulling apart pieces. So there's all these tools that you can use to grab different portions of the photograph and things like that. Uh, and I always tell people it's something that's like pretty easy to do, but it's hard to do well. Uh, like you can do it in a quick amount of time, but I don't think you gain as much. So like for me, I'm like zooming into like pixel granular level pieces and like grabbing by like tens of pixels at once and creating these like little divots and like kind of like these like stacked up abstracted patterns within these works. And that's kind of a little bit of the technical aspect. It's really just about physically going in and isolating. And then volume one presented in three different ways. It presented as pure isolates, which were kind of like Judah where Judah was taken out and isolated entirely on his own. There was zero scenery, right, in, in your Judah. And then there's pieces where Judah is a part of them, where he's teleported into a scene in Italy or in Israel or in New York or wherever it is, 
So there is this hybrid aspect too. And then similar to, uh, similar to Emma's piece is, is a full photo isolated on its own. Okay. Let me ask you, uh, let me ask you a question about hardware. I've heard several of the artists that I've interviewed have mentioned procreate. That seems like a really, um, a powerful tool, as you mentioned, and also something that a lot of people are using to create art. What other tools do you use? What, like, what kind of camera are you using? What other programs, things like that? Yeah. So again, di- digital probably isn't, isn't my strong suit. I got more <laughs> tools in the studio than anything else for my paintings, but I've been shooting with a Nikon DSLR for over 10 years. I'm probably due for an upgrade. Uh, from a software perspective, I really use primarily Procreate and Photoshop. Nice. I'm definitely not very digitally native. Uh, I don't create in digital like so naturally like, like a lot of my peers in the space do. Uh, a lot of the digital for me is kind of a tool that I use to create what I want, if that makes sense. It does. Let me ask you, what was the first um, NFT that you created? The first NFT that I created. So I released Chasing Sunset as a, as an NFT of its own. It was my Genesis drop of sorts. Um, so it was initially a part of the 50P series. And I don't know. I think that like for myself, I wanted to, before I released the series, I wanted to kind of introduce myself to the space. Um, and I wanted to get something out on record before I released the series. And kind of for me, it was also like this, there's no going back now. Like, let's put out the Genesis. Let's do this thing before the series and start. Where did it drop on Nifty or somewhere else? On Nifty. It dropped on Nifty. Um, it was about three weeks or so before the 50 piece series released. And I put out a, a piece that's one of the more special pieces to me. It's called Chasing Sunset. And uh, it was actually like one of the first pieces that started off this whole project. And it only felt right that if I'm stepping into something new, that I'd use that as a token to stand on its own and kind of lead me into this uh, whole new battlefield. <laughs> and did someone teach you about NFTs? How did you learn like about the crypto art scene? Like, I know we talked about your connection to Duncan, but how how did you like get onboarded into the world of crypto art yeah so my my first introduction of course was through duncan uh that was like way before nfts were even used for art uh way before anybody even knew what those three letters meant in a string together uh so i kind of always was aware of the way that this technology was being used in the crypto space before it kind of even existed and i've always followed like especially when the market was really mature and just getting started i was really into following the market to learn about different creators and people that I didn't even know existed because I've been so focused in the physical world and have quite a good grip and network. And I've been fortunate to to get to know a lot of people in that space that I kind of live in for the last 10 years. But in the digital world, I felt like an outsider. So I came in kind of like a fan. And I remember when this whole first thing started and like people, Mad Dog Jones, like, et cetera, like that whole first, like, fuck renders of the world like like the beginning you know and uh for me there was just a lot of intrigue i wasn't even always the biggest fan of the work per se but i was a fan of people having an opportunity to use their native medium to live and survive and share their work and i got really attracted to this concept i just didn't see myself in it and i didn't see where i fit in it as a painter and as somebody who 
who exists and is trying to exist in this physical world. And I kind of knew about it for a long time, but also pushed it off aside at the same moment. That's pretty cool. Beeple was the reason. Beeple's really the reason I'm here, man. I, you know, I live in Charleston, South Carolina, and Beeple's from your hometown, man. Yeah, and so when that, um, you know, when that Christie's sale happened with Beeple, where he sold the, you know, his five thousand paintings or whatever for sixty nine million dollars at Christie's, it was like eye popping to me, man. Like that caught my attention. You know, like I never really paid attention to it nfts before that but that was like the wake up where i was like oh my god there's something going on i think there was there was so much absurdity uh beyond the value the specific number of the value there were so many things that went on that i think the average person couldn't ignore it just as a as a performance of sorts as a holy crap how did we get here where are we what is this and uh i think a lot of people that i know definitely came to learn about this space the same way you did because they were like, holy crap, what's going on? Yeah. yeah. That's how this podcast got started. You know, we, my wife and I were jumping into like this NFT scene and like collecting art and trying to explain to our friends what NFTs were. And like our friends were looking at us like we had three heads. They didn't even know what we were talking about. So the very first thing we did was we said, let's just start blogging and telling people like in basic terms what NFTs are and, you know, so our friends and family could understand what we were talking about. That's kind of how this started. It's wild, you know. That- it, it is. It's wild. And I mean, you, you humbled me quickly earlier and you were right about it. We're still early, you know, like I think a lot of the times when I talk to this, talk about this stuff with my friends and people in my world who are like so deep in this now, you get lost for a second and you feel like we're, we're so far in and we're so late and all these huge things have happened. But in the speck of history and more specifically art history, this is but a dust, you know, like it's a piece of dust, it's a grain of sand. No time has really elapsed and we're already doing amazing things. And it's, it's definitely like a funky space for me, you know, like having resisted the space for so long for my own reasons, which I've outlined many, many times publicly, privately, I'm very open about it because I think it's important as somebody who's here now to explain how I got here and why it took me so long in a sense. Um, but I'm really excited to just see it all grow. And I think right now I'm watching this shift where a lot of the noise is quieting down. Uh, a lot of the projects that are using NFTs as a technology to as a vehicle for money and grabs and things like that, I think a lot of that's losing some of its some of its shine. And I think that I'm already watching a lot of artists who aren't even digitally native step in and say, oh, but I also do digital artwork. This is a means for me to do this. So I'm really excited to see the way that these worlds start to blend more and the way that the market kind of shakes out a lot of the noise and a lot of the craze from the last year or two years. And kind of see how digital art actually functions in this space for real as art on its own, like just for art's sake. I, I I completely feel that, man. I feel that this is like such a pivotal moment in history. 100%. And that we are on the cusp of this digital revolution that is about to change everything that we know going forward in the it's, world. It's something that we talked about also like last time that we spoke. I remember I mentioned to you that we would be silly to not think that creators of the future aren't working digitally. You know, like they, like I came into painting because like, I love to paint, but how did I start painting? Because people were painting. 
You know, <laughs> now every kid at a restaurant is sitting on their parents' iPad and every like sixth grader on, on the school bus is sitting on their iPhone. And it's, you know, these things are so prevalent in their life and they're coding and they're writing tech and building languages. And so why aren't they going to doodle? Why aren't they going to create digitally and monetize digitally? And it's really exciting to have kind of seen this whole thing start off and go ballistic in the ways that it did. And now to kind of watch from the sideline with a little bit of more knowledge and experience and kind of see certain things shake out, other things take the spotlight. It's fun to kind of watch this evolve. And that's, that's something that I always bring up to my, my people around me that have been in this world early. Like you guys are a part of building this thing, like this actual history, what this thing is going to be for the next year, five years, 10 years, like we all have a say in it. And that's a rare, rare thing to know. I totally feel that man. And that's why this podcast is so important to me because I feel like some, I feel like this, this desire, this responsibility to like record this history for the people that are coming next. It's history, yeah. man. It is history. It is. We are it's history. And I think you've, you've always had this appreciation since me and you have connected. I always felt that you were very, very interested in who I was as an artist. Absolutely. And you were very, very interested in who I was as a person and why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. And, you know, like I never had a conversation with you that was ever surface level. So it never, it never like surprised me when you were like, Hey, I'm working on the ledge and I'm starting this thing up. And I was like, yeah, this all lines up because Chris actually cares and wants to know what the hell is going on with all of us. And I think people like you doing the things that you do, not only as a collector and supporting us, but as a dot connector and a communicator and a champion of our voices, it's, this is like the stuff that's invaluable that I think people like me are really, really lucky to have people like you around us. Well, thank you so much for saying that. I have no art skills, so this is my only. <laughs> you too, man. We'll get you in the studio. You'll find talk. some art skills. I'll tap them. <laughs> We're that waiting I... on you here, man. <laughs> Who inspires you? What artists do you follow? Wow. That's like the easiest question. That's so hard for me. I know I should have some like gut check answer to it, but the list goes on and on. There's so many artists that I love. Um, so it's really funny. Like, I think one thing that's unique about me when people ask me that question is that I usually name off people who I don't even love their work as much as I love them as a person. Uh, like artist for me, capital A artist has evolved so much over the last few years. And I've realized that there's so many people that I gravitate to not only for their work, but how they communicate the way that they give back the way that they give to people. Uh, I'll name off a few, just random in no order, no connotation, nothing. When I first started, when I was a kid in Prince Street, uh, the first people that I really ever connected to as artists, and I was probably like 11 or 12 years old, was a duo called You Are New York, um, Mike and Fernando. And they used to sell their work out on the street and then found their ways to the gallery and grew and grew and grew. But the two of them have always taken extra good care of me even before I was a creator and always looked out for me as a kid. And I've always been connected to their energy and their style as creators. And uh, they set the graffiti foundation in my life, which is really prevalent in a lot of my abstract works. Today, one of my favorite artists right now is Adam Heimbach, artist I would definitely recommend looking into. Uh, telling you about him would take up another hour, but I urge anyone who's listening, listen, listen and look up about Heimbach. He's an artist, artist telling stories that go beyond and beyond the canvas. Uh, and another artist that I really connect with on a human level too is Gregory Sif. Uh, he's an artist. I'm actually like weirdly wearing his sweatshirt today, oh, nice. uh, which is funny, but 
I really started connecting with all these different people who use their voice in unique ways and use their art as a platform in unique ways. And it's not for like the idea of creating change or this or that, which is all great in its own right, but it's about the sense of vulnerability and honesty and kind of just being who you are as an artist. And that has always, always driven me. So that's a few, but the list is long, Chris. Are you collecting any NFTs? Do you buy NFTs? Not too much. Um, I'm not really in much of a collecting phase right now, even in the physical world. I pick up things here and there. The one person who I've been supporting the most, I'd say, in both realms, and I picked up his Genesis piece, funny enough, he's also named Chris. Uh, it's an artist that I met on online on Instagram maybe five, six years ago. He goes by the name of Chris K. Creates. And Chris kind of creates the work that I think about. Like whatever my emotional being, state of being is inside of my brain, he manages to create works that are literally speak to everything that I'm thinking about at all times. So right around the time that I did my drop, he put out a Genesis piece. I think it was on OpenSea. And uh, that was the first piece that I collected. And I'm, I think it's pretty safe to say no matter where he goes, I, don't, I couldn't imagine myself selling that thing. That thing is... Uh, very, very close to me, and so is his work. So that's my first NFT purchase. Nice. Yeah. There's a lot of really cool um, digital artists in the New York and New Jersey area, man. I actually have had two. Um, I, I know two of them. Um, Snuffy, who's in Brooklyn, and uh, also Dave Krugman, who's also in um, Brooklyn. Those two guys are really close to you there. I feel like... Uh, you guys. There's, uh, there's like a whole world out here of artists up in this area. And it's funny, like I'm retoggling a lot of my my own perspective and like my own searching, I guess, because I'm so I'm so deep in the physical space, and I've that really is like my my first love, and there's no doubt about it. I wouldn't portray myself as anything else. Like I really live in that physical world, and now when I stepped into the digital space, it started to change a lot of my habits and a lot of my research, and now I find myself like looking out for new artists. I love what I'm seeing with photography in the space. That's been really, really fun to watch. Um, but I feel like I still have a long ways to go and I feel like I could still use, you know, like I lean on other people all the time too. Like, who are you collecting? Who are you looking at? Who's up sure. and coming? Who's new? Cause for me, the same way as physical, like I'll go see shows of people who I don't know just to go see art. Uh, and now we're lucky that we have all these huge marketplaces and it's like an endless scroll of incredible work and incredible people and stories. Yeah, I love that you mentioned the photography aspect of things. Actually, a lot of the people that I've interviewed so far on the ledge are all street photographers. A lot of them are street photographers. And I think the reason why I have a leaning towards or a bias towards street photographers is I told you I'm not I'm not artistic at all, but I do kind of amateur photography, <laughs> which, which I'm not very good at. But I like talking to photographers because I always feel like, you know, more exposure i have to really good photographers maybe it'll help me get better <laughs> well next time you're in uh next time you're in this neck of the woods we'll we'll both strap our cameras around our necks and hit the streets love that i think love it's that. i think it's really unique to watch what's going on it's fun like i remember for me like even when i was starting in this and i was overcoming the whole didn't want to go digital am i going to go digital a big thing was about native right like mm -hmm. if i'm creating digitally why can't i do everything else digitally in a sense in terms of mm -hmm. the work and the product and the pipeline that it goes through and photography was always interesting because i know a lot of photographers you know you take thousands of photos could be a week a day a year whatever it is but then you have to trim it down and put it into a show and 
worry about value and quantities. And I've watched in the digital space, people are approaching photography in new ways. And that's been really fun to kind of like be a street photographer in the digital space, but not just showing off my photos. I kind of like get to jump between these worlds uh, in terms of community. And that's, that's been a treat. I want to, I want to ask you some questions about your recent trip. You just went to Kansas all over. We were everywhere, man. So will you tell me two. You spend a couple minutes talking about your, your trip and what that was like and some of your experience that you had. I, I did read some of your blogs. So I am a little bit, I know a little I bit. Appreciate about it, but I'd it. like to hear, well, hear your take on it. Well, first of all, thank you. And thank everybody who was a part of volume one, because, you know, for me coming from the physical world, it was really important for me to build community digitally when I got started in this space. Uh, it's one of the big reasons I really came came to the space. I was blown away by how people were connecting and moving together, kind of the way that me and you are now, like we're the proof for me. Um, and when I released volume one and it, it went as well as it did, I decided that the future of We Could Be Anywhere lies in my collector's hands. So thank you for selecting Small Town USA. I presented you and other collectors with three options to choose from and Small Town USA one by a mile, um, which which was a treat for me because I was really excited to get to do that. So I went on this journey this summer. Uh, I spent about two weeks in the Midwest. I had this fascination for a long time with the Midwest, uh, places like Kansas, Nebraska, Wyoming, Idaho, which are four states that I went to visit. I had never been to prior. Uh, I feel like I always heard about the Midwestern life and what community is life out, like out there and what life is like out there, but I always heard it from people who didn't know anything about it, and that always bothered me. I never really liked what I heard, and I always felt like there was so much more to explore. And uh, I've kind of been on this binge within myself of vulnerability and storytelling and connecting, and I feel like after Volume 1, I wanted to focus in on something outside of myself and really tell a greater story that could that could really give to those people that I went to meet and give them a platform to speak and share their tales. So I brainstormed and I came up with this small town USA concept. And I basically sat on Google Maps for no joke, like 10, 12 days, like straight. We're talking like 120, 150 hours, something silly. Oh. And just walked through these towns, like going up in like highways and freeways and this and that. And like, just walking through these states inch by inch by inch. And I created an itinerary for myself across Kansas, Nebraska, Wyoming, Idaho. I visited probably over 50 small towns um, in my trip. I didn't know a single soul. I didn't set up a single meeting. I didn't reach out to anybody. I showed up, went from town to town to town, walked into stores, shops, knocked on people's doors, whatever it took to meet somebody, share a drink, share a meal, share a story, walk through town together. And uh, it was crazy, man. I mean, the most humbling experience I've ever had in my life to be an absolute stranger and to be welcomed like family every single place that I that I went to. Um, and it was really just about unearthing these stories, right? I was on this mission to collect photographs, which was a challenge in itself because I'm primarily a street photographer as anyone who's listening now knows, as we've talked about. But this series was a lot different, right? You can't roll into a town of 42 people, walk into the bar and just start snapping shots. Right. Uh, so it presented this unique challenge for me as a photographer in a new way. And even as a storyteller, you know, like writing was so important to me in volume one. 
And it ended up being really important to the people who supported the series too, which, which I didn't know at the time, but writing was so important for me, for myself to kind of contextualize and work through so much of the growth and the challenge and what I'm doing. And I knew that when I went out to small town USA, I had to collect these stories and tell them for these people who are being so open and giving to me too. So it was kind of like this double job or like a triple job, really. Like one of them is like, you're like a traveler and you don't know where the hell you are and you've never been to any of these places, you know, nobody and you rent a car and you just go. And the second job is being a photographer and you have to capture these shots and these scenes. You know, there were towns, Chris, that I would roll into just to capture a building that I found. And I wouldn't see a single person in town and maybe I wasn't even looking, but it's just to catch one building, which you'll see in the series. Sure. Or one this, one that. So that was another arm of the job. And and the third arm, which is probably was the most difficult to to pull off, I'd say, and to really like really do well and reach reach these people and connect with them, was to be a vehicle to tell their stories, uh, to jump into people's lives and to build trust and community and friendship, to really just get to know each other. And through this trip, I got to meet so many incredible people who I'm so grateful that they shared their stories with me. Some of which you might have read on the blog, like on the blogs that I was writing up, like the recaps of the days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of those stories you're going to see in bits and pieces in the next volume that are going to be driving the narrative of what small town life is like. And, you know, like the whole, the genesis of the trip for me was all about, really, it was more about like what we could be anywhere is at large, that we're really all the same, right? Like you go out to Nebraska and you don't know anybody and you think different, you look different, you know, different things, you're into different things. Hell, I'm telling you, Chris, we're all the damn same. Like these people are just like me and you, you sit down at their table and you are one of them and they are one of you. And after two weeks out there, just diving into people's lives and being so graciously accepted, I was fortunate enough to collect just enough stories. I think that if I can translate it in the right ways, I can share it with you all and tell you all about what small town life is like across the Midwest. And you'll get to realize that you might want to go there too and share a beer with some of these people that I did or share a meal or stay a night. And I don't know, it was just something so worldly that was so much bigger than me and what I'm trying to do with like my work every day and things like that. And it was just so special to show up as a fly on the wall and just sit there and just be a sponge. And, and now I got to figure out how to tell it the best way that I can so that all of you could experience it too and get to know these people and communities the way that I did. And what's so cool is art is the vehicle which you used for all of that experience. You know, that's very cool. I've, I've been all over the world myself. I'm 50 years old. I've, I can tell you that people are fundamentally the same everywhere. They're the same in Africa. They're the same in Indonesia. They're the same in Thailand. They're the same in Kansas. They're the same in Vegas, you know, in the South and California. It doesn't matter where you go, you know. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, I think like it's so like finding the way to bridge that gap of that humanity and that sameness mm-hmm. with it being genuine is like that. That's why I went out there. Right. Because it's not like, Oh, we're all the same, like buddy, buddy, like everybody should be happy. Things sure. like, you know, like there, there's a time and a place for that too. But this is like, yeah. no, like we really are the same. This isn't just like some stunt or a tagline or this or that. It's like, I went out there and did, and did my time in these places with these people in these communities. And I can tell you myself, you know, and I had like this one call with a friend who called me on the road. And I remember I told him, I was like, you know, the hardest part is that 
I'm gaining everything while I'm out here. And now I have to like, like my job, my desire is that like, I, sh- I shouldn't be the only one that gains because I was there. Like the reason I came is to be this vehicle for all of you. Um, so now it's really about creating the artworks in the right way and honoring the stories that people shared with me about themselves and their families and their upbringings. And hopefully when it all wraps up, it's really just a collection that not only narrates small town life across the Midwest, which might be foreign to a lot of people, but it might also narrate a lot of people's lives and, and ideas and emotions for themselves because so there's so many parallels between the things that we're all going through. And it doesn't matter, you know, like we have different worldviews, but our problems are the same. And that trip really opened my eyes to a whole new world of, of kind of connection and possibility. And, and I'm really, really excited to translate it all and bring it all to you guys and the world. So, so maybe we could sharpen up and, and look through a different lens next time we think about these types of things together. Yeah, I love that, man. Real recognizes real, man. And something that I've talked about with almost every artist that I've interviewed is like this idea that, um, you know, people that are genuine and have really good intentions and they're they're coming from like this genuine place of uh, of, of being real. Uh, and people just recognize that, man. That's just so easy to see, you know, like, I mean, it, when, when you see it, you see it, you know, that's really cool. When is volume two coming out? When are we going to be look, when are we going to see? This so out? it's nothing official, but I'm thinking volume two should come out on the one year anniversary of volume one, uh, which is April 21st. So we'll see how that holds, but I'm definitely going to resurface to the internet and start diving through some of these stories and works and start sharing some of these things out. But for me, like when I started the whole digital project, I was really attracted to the idea of using we could be anywhere as this once a year check-in with myself, with the world. Uh, so right now we're on pa- on pace to to do it on the anniversary. And if all goes right, we could be anywhere is going to continue year after year, volume after volume, stories and new stories on that same date for the time to come. How do you view uh, floor prices of your works? How do you put a value on something? Like what's your thought process on assigning what something's worth and how to sell it and how to curate like floor prices and drive yeah. value to, to collectors, that, that type of thing. I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah. So that's something that's really important to me. I think for me, it became really important because it's a function of time. I've been creating and selling works for quite a while. So figuring out a little bit about how that whole end of the world works is very, very important to me because it's important to my collectors. Um, so, Jumping into the digital space was really, really hard for me. It was probably one of the biggest holdbacks for me was was value. And it was less uh, because I was so concerned with the dollars and cents, but I was more concerned with not screwing over anybody who supported me, supported in me and believed in me and collected my works over the years. Uh, so maintaining value is really important and it looks very different in the physical art world than it does in the digital art world. There's far more volatility in the digital art world, and that scared the crap out of me, and it still does. Um, So when I came into the digital space, that was a big negotiation that I had with myself because I've earned some stripes over the years and built up the value that I have physically, but I'm I'm fresh meat in the digital landscape. (laughs) So when I came into the series, I decided that you know, to control population and quantities and things like that. I, I, it was a little bit of a gamble and it still is to put out 51 of ones. That's a lot of supply, sure. definitely. 
but I didn't want to be a part of the the additions in the digital space. I think it's it's a it's a good move for some, but for me and my work and my collector base and the people who have supported me, I wanted to have a little bit more control and not go crazy and not be subject to the same volatility because there's a lot of people who have really believed in me and I, and I owe them that. Um, so when I came to the digital space, I ended up launching volume one at $800 a piece, which was, I mean, I don't know, I guess you can tell me as somebody, somebody else that's not me how that seemed. But for me, it was kind of like this. Well, here's how I look, here's how I look at that. (laughs) I think you got out of the 50 pieces that you sold for $800, there's only four of them listed. The cheapest ones around $2,200 and a couple of them are listed at like, $50,000. Fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> I am very, very lucky to have collectors <laughs> who are really holding on to this pretty well, my, from what I can see. <laughs> yeah, and and listen, and that's that that was so important to me. You know, like that's what scared the crap out of me the most because right. so many of people have shown up to support me in so many meaningful ways that have changed my life, and making sure that I take care of my value for them is very, very, very important to me. So this volume one, like you said, like are there four up? Is that what you're saying? Uh, for sale right now, you've got four pieces. The lowest price is at 1500. The next one's 2200. The next one's $36,000 and the next one's $49,000. Right. So <laughs> Out of the four I, pieces, uh, that's, that's a pretty good floor. I would say, man. Yeah. And listen, I think it's a testament to the people who have supported my work till now. People are really holding on to sure. the works and they're less driven to flip because I think People are starting to people are starting to see that things are changing in the market, and yeah. I guess maybe I'm up to something that's I don't know. I guess I shouldn't say. Maybe you guys should say. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I'm like really that, honored and humbled. I like that you really sure your artwork is a one of one. Uh, I will say I I believe you're the first artist I collected a one of one from. You know everything. I I know I am because that was your post that you made. You said I was your first man. Yeah, I think that's true. And uh, you know, because one of ones are a lot of times these one of one pieces are really out of reach for the average collector, man. You know, like people that are just kind of average collectors like myself are kind of constrained to only collecting edition pieces because that's what's affordable. You know. Yeah, I've uh, I've a lot of thinking to do about how to how to how to really keep keep my finger on the pulse of all of this. That's something I'm thinking about a lot with the future drops and the continuation of the We Could Be Anywhere series. It kind of stinks, but at some point art becomes about everything but art. So I try to focus on the art as much as I can, look out for you guys the best that I can. And so far it seems like we're uh, we're finding a good balance and meeting, meeting on the bridge at, at the exact right place. From my perspective as a collector, that seems to be the formula for success for most artists in this space. Focus on the art, Try to drive value back to the collectors as much as you can, and uh, and and put out the best the best stuff that you have. And and what else what else can anybody ask for of you? You know, nothing, man. We're <laughs> blessed. We're lucky. We're grateful. We're thankful. Really, it's uh, it's been one hell of a ride, and it's been one hell of an introduction to a new space, and new people, and new communities, and new opportunities. And I'm really grateful to to be in moments like this with you and to be able to talk this out and share and especially to be on the, on the heels of this trip that I was on and all that's coming up with continuation of we could be anywhere and just trying to connect with as many people as we can and share some stories and emotions and some laughs and some cries and 
And if we yeah. could keep on telling those stories for ourselves and for others too, then then I think we're going to keep pushing exactly where we need to be. Let me ask you a question. Where, if somebody's listening to this podcast and they really want to connect with you, what would be the best place for them to start or find you? Sure. So best space, probably Instagram. Uh, I know NFTR should be on Twitter, but I'm not tweeting enough these days. You guys got to push me. I'm pushing myself too. But Instagram uh, at don. On Twitter, it's the same. Uh, and then my website is... I, I try to push everybody that I meet for the first time on my website because it gives good context of my journey and the history of my work. So my website is artbyatan.com. Right on. I'll, I'll make sure all of those um, links are in the show notes. So anybody listening that wants to connect to Aton and find them on social media can do that there. How do you, um, how do you use social media? You, may, you said you mainly use Instagram, huh? I find it really hard to go back and forth from all the different formats. You know, there's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you know, it's like, I don't know which one to focus on. I, uh, you know, growing my podcast, I guess I'm trying to focus mainly on Twitter because that's where most of my audience is, but I'm more, um, I'm more lean towards Instagram just because it's easier. So I don't know. I don't it's know. Hard, right? right. It's confusing. Yeah, it's really the landscape it's keeps changing. I'm pretty bad with social media, like in terms of my upkeep. I know how to use it well. Like you give me, you let me run your account, I'll bring you some new business. But when it comes to my work, it's it's more challenging, right? Because like, you know what you need to do to get the algorithm to pump you on out and right. to get your eyeballs. But like, it's hard because you're working on something that's a piece of you and it's your artistry and it's your soul and we're not product. So social media is really hard for me because sometimes I feel like you have to like, you have to like put on this hat. You know, you have to like say things a certain way and present things a certain way. And, and that's not my style as you come to know. So when I tweet, when I post, that's like all me all the time. You're not going to catch any, any BS in between, but it is hard. It's hard to, to play the game and sometimes shout into the ether. Like I'm new on Twitter. I have like a hundred something followers, I think right now. Sometimes I'm sending out these like monster posts when I was on my trip, like, detailing like life stories of like real emotional hard hard hitting stuff and i'm like man like i don't think anyone's gonna see this but i'm gonna press send anyway you know so i'll be back man like especially on twitter you know i put together (laughs) these threads about artists that i'm writing about or you know i put all this time and energy into it and then you tweet it into the universe and it gets one like (laughs) and you're like oh man i just it but I don't have the thing in me that uh, the I don't have that thing in me that can just like do the engagement farming tweets, you know, where it's just tweeting out a bunch of BS all day to just to get people. Well, yeah, like, listen, listen, Chris. I think if it comes, if it's naturally what you want to say and it happens to work, then it's great. But like, yeah, I can't yeah. tell you how many times people are telling me, "Oh, you have to start making videos of yourself painting and time lapse it." I'm like, yeah, like I'm, I know that'll get some views, but like, what am I doing? You know, like why? That would be cool. Do that. <laughs> I would like to see that. I, we that. should end this a minute ago. Aton.com <laughs> <laughs> though. E-I-T-A-N dot D-O-N. We'll be back and pushing and pouring our souls into the, into the ether of the internet soon again. We're running out of time. Eitan, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to say about yourself, your art, or your vision of the future? Uh, I think the one thing I would sign off on is kind of the way that I sign off with 
most conversations that I have with with people in general. It's just if you're working on something, keep trying. If you have an idea, go for it. If you're thinking about giving up, don't. It's like what I've learned these last few years, really, you know, like through my own journey with art and life and it's there's it's you it's up to you to do what you're going to do and there's going to be challenges in the road and there's going to be a million reason why reasons as to why not do something and i think if you have something that you're working towards or working on or you want to see for yourself or see for those around you latch on to the one reason that it does work and keep fighting everything else and keep showing up and be diligent and be crazy and just just believe in yourself. I know it sounds cheesy and it's like a funny way to probably sign this off. I'm like talking to you and me, like just us. But like that for me is my, that's my cocktail. Like I get up in the morning. I don't always have it. I don't always have that, that drive, that energy, that emotion. Sometimes I'm down. I don't feel well. I'm beating myself up. And like when I really try to overcome myself and take care of myself and do the few things that I know that I need to do to give myself the fighting chance. I'm able to do so much more. And I guess in my final thoughts, I would just empower anybody who's listening, who's going through something, thinking about something, wanting to do something like sort yourself. It's you. It's you in the mirror. Figure it out. It's always, always worth it. And status quo is always waiting. So you might as well try. That seems like a great place to end. <laughs> I like talking <laughs> to myself, Chris. <laughs> that was really awesome, man. Thank you so much, Aton. Chris, thank you. I don't know if it's still rolling, but it doesn't matter. But thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's still rolling, but uh, good because I want the world to hear them. This, good, this is my final send off. Uh, <laughs> thank you, seriously. I think it's invaluable and priceless to have connections with people like you to be able to build friendship with absolute strangers and share stories and laughs and deep thoughts and surface thoughts and just to have like community and the platform to kind of just be ourselves together and get to know each other and to grow. And it's an honor to be part of your collection. And just thank you for always believing in me. Dude, dude we're friends. We're going to be friends. That's what that's I know. What we are, man. I'm I waiting like for that. you on the steps already. Yeah. I got a I canvas on the wall. For you. Like, it's, it's my bow. I like this guy. <laughs> we're waiting on you, man. Yeah. I'm ready to come back up to New York, man. I really want to come see your studio and uh, and uh, get to know you more, man. Thank you so much, Al. Good. Um, Chris, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for joining me on another episode of The Ledge with my guest this week, Aton Barocas. You can find Aton on Twitter at E-I-T-A-N underscore Don. Or you can find me on Twitter at Harper underscore underscore Chris or my Instagram at ChrisHarper.eth. Links to the artist's um, website and socials will be in the show notes. And I'd like to welcome everybody to join us again next Tuesday for another episode of The Ledge. If you don't mind, please rate and review the show in Spotify or Apple or your platform of choice. Thanks again and have a great day.